Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moya Lothian McLean, standing in for Michael Walker, who will pop up at some point during this week. And tonight I'm joined by Ash Shakar. Hey, I hope you enjoy having custody of me for this evening. Um, because really you're kind of in loco parentis by being the main host on a Monday. I want full custody. I'm going to go to the courts against Michael. First story. Paris is burning. French President Emmanuel Macron has faced two votes of no confidence in France's parliament. The vote came after the French president used controversial executive powers last week to force through a change to the French pension age, raising it from 62 to 64. Now, the government's pension reforms were due to face a parliamentary vote, but Macron decided to invoke Article 49.3 of the French Constitution, which gives the government the power to bypass Parliament. This was the moment his Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, was heckled by left-wing MPs singing the national anthem to prevent her announcing the use of those powers. de bien vouloir cesser immédiatement, cela est contraire à notre règlement. Et la parole est à madame la première ministre. The decision to bypass a parliamentary vote on the hugely unpopular pension reforms comes in the context of widespread protests across France. Millions of people have taken part in at least seven national strike days in France since January, with many more protests happening across the country in that period. There have been oil and port blockades and massive disruption to public transport. Unions across several industries have also downed tools for prolonged periods, including workers in France's energy industries. Part of their tactics involved Robin de Bois operations, Robin Hood to you, me, and those not using Duolingo, which included providing free gas and electricity to schools, public libraries, and low-income homes across the country. Hours after the government announced it would pass its pension reforms without a parliamentary vote, further protests broke out in Paris. Bins were set on fire and riot police armed with tear gas were sent in to disperse the crowds. These protests soon spread to other parts of the country. Here, the police fired tear gas at protesters in Nantes, a city in western France, after there were widespread displays of anger at Macron and his government. Meanwhile, in Lyon, protesters broke into the city hall and set it on fire. And in Versailles, protesters stormed the city's main rail station, occupying the train tracks in protest at the government's plan. You can't say the French don't know how to do it right. Earlier today, I spoke with journalist Oliver Haynes. I began by asking him to set the scene for the showdown between France's president and its parliament. So there's two votes of no confidence being brought today, one of which is more significant than the other. The first is by a centrist grouping called Liot, who are made up of the overseas territories and some of the socialists who didn't uh, want to join the NUPS coalition because they thought the Mélenchon and the, the France Insoumise were too left-wing. And it's being brought by them because it allows for the left-wing MPs in La France Insoumise um, and the Communist Party and the MPs on the far right to work together and get behind the centrist grouping without being seen to work together, really. Because last time uh, there was 
Last time around the legislative elections, just after there were sort of lots of problems about people being seen to vote for far right motions or the far right being seen to vote for left wing motions. Whereas this uh, Liot vote sort of circumvents all of that because everyone's just getting behind this tiny grouping that is for the most part insignificant in the parliament. What's the second no confidence vote that's being brought today? That's being brought by the Rassemblement National or the National Rally, which is Marine Le Pen's party. And um, I think it's unlikely that either of them will succeed because these things are very difficult to force through. Uh, I think there's only been one successful vote of no confidence in the entire history of the Fifth Republic. Um, and if, if there were one to succeed today, it would be the one that sort of everyone can get behind easily rather than the one that's being brought by uh, the far right. This motion, this no confidence vote being brought by the overseas territories, what is the major block standing in the way of that passing? Basically, Macron doesn't have a majority in the parliament. He has um, 200 and something MPs, but he doesn't quite have a majority. And so for a lot of his policies, he's been relying on Les Républicains, which is the, uh, the Gaullist right wing party. Uh, who agree with Macron broadly on a lot of economic issues, and they've been really struggling to find an identity since uh, they kind of got crushed at the presidential election because they're not right-wing enough to ally with uh, the Rassemblement National, though they are heading in that direction on a lot of issues, and they're not left-wing enough to ally with Macron. Um, so he's been relying on them for votes because they basically agree on a lot of things uh, on the economy. And... Uh, lots of them will probably vote with the government on the motion of no confidence, meaning that they will vote against the motion. There have, however, been um, a few dissident MPs and the Republicans who've said that they will consider voting for the motion because uh, the, the mood on the ground in France from the people I've been speaking to, and I'd imagine their constituents, is very, very angry. People see this as a sort of completely anti-democratic measure because uh, what Macron essentially did was he used Article 49.3 to pass the pension reform. Article 49.3 allows the prime minister, who is effectively commanded by Macron, uh, to push through a bill once every parliamentary session without a vote. Um, so it's seen as very anti-democratic and lots of people, even in kind of, you know, more right wing, more affluent Republican constituencies, are very uneasy with the fact that the government has done this for such a major bill and a bill that is incredibly unpopular. Macron faces his biggest public challenge since the Gilets Jaunes protests. What similarities do the current protests have with that movement? Um, I think there's a lot of similarities, actually, though there is, I suppose, one crucial difference. I'll start with the difference. The difference this time is that this began with trade union protests, whereas before with the Gilets Jaunes, uh, they kind of rejected trade unions. However, um, the similarities are that it started with a kind of economic issue. In 2018, it was the rise in the tax on fuel. This time, it's the rolling out of the pension reform. And then very quickly, it moved into a kind of movement for democracy. So the strikes were really big anyway. They were, they were massive. They were kind of record-breaking uh, in some ways. Um, and they were already quite intense. Uh, but now, they... Um, the union leaders are saying that they're going to carry on. They're going to harden uh, the strikes. So that means there'll be more rubbish on the streets of Paris. That means today France's oil refineries are being blocked again. And likely uh, oil will kind of build up in the depots, leading to fuel shortages at the pumps. Um, and the transport workers are on strike and they're causing massive disruption there. But beyond the strike wave, there is also a kind of street movement emerging 
uh, that's very similar to the yellow vest. Lots of people are actually wearing the yellow vests again, and they're bringing back the yellow vest slogans. And they're adopting kind of extra strike tactics, extra kind of you know uh, the tactics that a trade union wouldn't necessarily adopt. So they're they're blockading roundabouts and building big fires. They're um, capturing toll booths on motorways and letting people through them for free. Um, they are protesting outside uh, politicians who will be voting for the reform or against the censure motions. Um, offices, actually, Eric Ciotti, the politician I mentioned earlier, his windows were smashed. Um, and uh, yeah, the kind of main similarity, I suppose, is the just the level of anger and the sense that France is not a properly democratic country. Uh, is what it is, is what a lot of people feel. That's not for me to judge, but that's um, that is how people on the ground feel. Oh, and then the other the other similarity actually is the way in which the police are responding to this. So during the yellow vests, Macron um, Macron changed the head of the Paris police to a guy called Didier Lalmont, who um, had a history of kind of repressing strikes and protests. And that led to an enormous amount of people uh, getting injured, getting arrested, uh, like quite unfairly often. I think one woman died because a rubber bullet or a tear gas grenade was shot at her while she watched from her balcony and she ended up falling. And a kind of similar dynamic is now playing out where there have been 593 arrests already, I believe. And uh, the tear gas and the, the rubber bullets are being used. And the new Paris priest, Paris police prefect that was brought in a few months ago. He also has a history of repressing strikes uh, and protests using the kind of less than lethal weaponry of the French police. Do you think the involvement of the trade unions has the potential to make these bigger than the Gilets Jaunes protests, or does that hinder the mass appeal? Um, no, I think that I think that makes it potentially it potentially can uh, be larger. There is a lot of distrust among the yellow vest type people. Uh, of trade unions. So your typical yellow vest is a is a working class person or a lower middle class person who has kind of dropped out of politics. Uh, they've probably not voted maybe since the 2005 Euro referendum uh, or if they've ever voted at all if they're younger. Uh, they, they don't believe in political parties generally or if they do it's, one of, it's either Mélenchon or Le Pen and they don't really support them but they vote because they feel they have to. And um, they don't trust trade unions because trade unions have sort of been in dialogue with various governments and have not succeeded in preventing liberal economic reforms or neoliberal economic reforms. However, this uh, the spear tip of this movement is definitely the unions. Um, and so we're now seeing on the streets a kind of intermingling between these disenfranchised yellow vest type people and these represented uh, trade unionists or people who are not in trade unions, but who walk out with the unions anyway. So I think actually, yeah, this, um, this movement could end up being slightly bigger than the yellow vest because there's a greater sort of class coalition that can be formed around it. And because it has the um, possibility to, to bring in different types of people, the trade unions who weren't able to capitalize on the yellow vest at all are now at the front. So the yellow vests are very keen to kind of get back involved or the yellow vest type people are keen to get very keen to get back involved. How big are these protests or this burgeoning movement outside of metropolitan cities like Paris? Are we seeing it spread? Yeah, we are. Um, so I spoke to an organiser with La France Insoumise in Amiens earlier, um, earlier today, just to sort of see, sort of test the water around there. That's this quite deindustrialised area. It's um, 
it's you know it's kind of run down it's a bit like some northern towns in the uk and he said these are the biggest protests that they've seen there for 50 years and everybody is out and it's people that weren't uh people who are not in unions people you know there have been kind of occupy movements in France over the last few years. It's not them. It's not the trade unionists. This is ordinary people who are really, really angry. And I don't want to overstate it. I'm not saying this is like the French Revolution again, but the anger is definitely being felt out in the provinces. Um, and if you look at the polls, uh, people in provincial France support the movement as well. Um, and there are, um, I, th I think, basically the, the the way to sort of test whether. Um, uh, where the people in kind of provincial France are on board is look at what's happening on the roundabouts. Because if you look at what's happening on the streets, obviously the, the Place de Concorde where uh, Louis VI was beheaded is, is, is massively full. Uh, obviously Trocadero is full of these, these kind of, the Champs-Élysées is full, these, these big Parisian areas. But actually, if you go and look out, if you go look on Twitter or you read kind of local newspapers, people are building blockades on roundabouts. And that's that's the real sign that this is kind of cutting through to those areas because that's that's where the meeting place of the yellow vests were and that seems to be uh, where the kind of meeting places um, are again of people who are really upset that this is happening but aren't in a big city so can't protest outside a government department or a big town hall. Well, we've got some breaking news for you right now. Macron has narrowly survived the no-confidence vote built by that centrist and leftist bloc. He won by just nine votes. So 278 voted in favour and they needed 287 to bring down the government. The second vote that is being brought by Marine Le Pen is likely to fail, which means the pension law will pass. But that is probably not the end of this battle. And to find out what happens now after the no confidence vote, I also spoke to Oliver Haynes earlier. Even though he's won, he's in a lot of trouble. I think Elizabeth Bourne, his prime minister, might have to go anyway, even though the government has survived this. I think he might use her as the kind of bullet sponge, uh, the kind of scapegoat for, um, for the anger of this movement. And she's privated some social media already because she was getting close to 49.3 thousand followers. Um, and, you know, there are lots of signs that say she's uh, she's like Thatcher. So he's, I think he's going to try and use her as a scapegoat. However, he's lost an immense amount of credibility over this. Um, the international liberal press have all condemned him for it. The FT, the New York Times. Uh, this, The fact that the first no confidence motion was brought by Liot it's quite interesting because these are people who are too right wing for the for the left coalition. Um, uh, well, not all of them, but some of them are too right wing for the left coalition. They're, they're kind of congenial centrists. Uh, and yet they were saying that there's not been enough dialogue, like we'd have accepted concessions. Um, the same is true of the unions he's created. He's somehow managed to bring out every union in opposition to him, including unions that are very, very interested in social dialogue and compromise. And yet now they're saying that they're going to harden the strikes. So he's uh, he's in a he's in a spot of bother. I think he's going to really struggle for the rest of his um the rest of his mandate. Uh, in terms of the strikes and the protests, I think they'll continue for a while. I think it will probably eventually morph into more protests than strikes, just because strikes uh, are expensive. You know, for the workers, like as we know here, they're they're hard to maintain. Even even if the workers are really angry, which they are, they're, they're hard to maintain because they hit the workers in the pockets. So I think there'll be lots more protests as well. And then also there's been some interesting talk from the leader of the French Communist Party and from Marine Le Pen about using uh, what's called the Shared Referendum Initiative, which is a sort of quite new feature of the French constitution, which allows MPs to bring a referendum 
if one fifth of the parliament and one tenth of voters, so 4.7 million people, sign a petition saying they want a referendum on a subject. There were a couple of other constitutional um, conditions that you've got to clear. But I think that will be the next frontier of this fight. So although the pension reform uh, has been passed by the 49.3, uh, it's not necessarily the end of the battle because the strikes and the protests will continue in an attempt to make Macron U-turn, though I don't think he will over that. But they're going to use another constitutional mechanism or they're going to try and use another constitutional mechanism, rather, which is the, uh, the shared referendum initiative to try and force a referendum in order to overturn it. I don't know how likely it is that that will pan out, but if everybody, if, if the CGT's numbers, which is the main trade union, are to be believed, on the 7th of March, um, there were 3.2 million, I think, people out on strike. So they would only need a further million uh, signatories if everyone who was at that protest and that strike signed up. So it's not, not impossible that they could bring this referendum forward. And then that would be the next uh, frontier of battle. Beyond that, um, I, I do think he'll struggle to govern domestically because he can't use 49.3 again for, another, for the rest of this parliamentary session. Um, he's already used it, rather Elizabeth Bourne has already used it to an unprecedented degree because you can use it for budgets. So she has used it for the amount of time that she's been in office. She's used it the most out of any prime minister of the fifth Republic. Hawker used it more in absolute terms, but he was in power for over three years. Um, so they were already struggling given they've lost their majority. Now, not they, not only have they lost their majority, they've lost all credibility and sort of, I think, any sense of democratic legitimacy, really. It was tenuous to begin with. Lots of people were already quite angry. Uh, but they, they, yeah, I think they're going to really struggle now. And now talking more about operating issues, one British rail operator is breathing a sigh of relief today. That's because after months of strike action, RMT members have accepted a pay deal with Network Rail. 20,000 members voted in favour of the new offer by a margin of three to one. And what does that offer include? Well, a pay increase of up to 14.4% for the lowest paid workers, an increase of up to 9.2% for the highest paid workers, a total uplift on basic earnings between 15.2% for the lowest paid grades to 10.3% for the highest paid grades, no compulsory redundancies until January 2025, a withdrawal of Network Rail's condition that a deal was conditioned on the RMT accepting the company's modernising maintenance plan and increased back pay. 55% of RMT members in Network Rail earn less than 35000 a year, and this means most union members will be entitled to the 15.2% uplift over two years. It's worth remembering that when RMT first declared their dispute with Network Rail, the union were told they would get a maximum pay rise of 3%. Amazing what a spot of industrial action can do. Now, here's what General Secretary Mick Lynch had to say about the deal, with a reminder that strike action is not over yet. Strike action and the inspiring solidarity and determination of members has secured new money and a new offer, which has been clearly accepted by our members, and that dispute is now over. Our dispute with the train operating companies remains firmly on and our members' recent highly effective strike action across the 14 train companies has shown their determination to secure a better deal. If the government now allows the train companies to make the right offer, we can then put that to our members. But until then, the strike action scheduled for March 30th and April 1st will take place. The ball is in the government's court. It's not just RMT members celebrating. Here's how right-wing outlet GB News reported the win. Rail strikes set to end. Network Rail members of RMT vote to accept the pay offer as Mick Lynch's reign of terror almost 
over. Well, let's not count our chickens yet. Ash, why was the RMT successful in their dispute with Network Rail? I think first and foremost, the strikes have been incredibly disruptive and it's had knock-on effects across lots of different sectors of the economy as well. Because when you effectively suspend portions or indeed the entirety of the country's rail network, people can't travel for work, they can't travel for leisure, events get cancelled or reorganised, productivity slows down. And so it's meant that The workers who have been involved in this dispute have had an incredible amount of leverage. I'd also suggest that the way in which public opinion has really turned against the government in the matter of strike action has been quite significant here. Because it's not the case that the RMT have been out on a limb and striking by themselves. We've seen strikes across the public sector and indeed parts of the private sector as well. So, Everybody in this country probably knows somebody who has been out on strike, whether it is a teacher or a nurse or a paramedic or a doctor or indeed someone who works on the railways. You've had civil servants going out on strike, you've had lecturers go out on strike, you've had academic support staff go on strike. It's really been a huge moment of consciousness raising in this country. Uh, Add to that the fact that the government's handling of the economy has made them deeply unpopular. Um, You've got energy bills, you've got inflation, you've got uh, interest rates impacting people who are paying off their mortgages. And it means that you've got a climate which is quite conducive to building up some measure of public support for strike action, including very disruptive strike action, in spite of the fact you've still got this incredibly hostile press environment. So the success of the strike when it comes to network rail for me is predicated on those two things. You've got uh, the disruption of the strike and you've also got the general tenor of public opinion. What I'm really interested in seeing is what happens next when it comes to the private rail operators. So we're thinking of, you know, Avanti, right? No one's got a good word to say about Avanti uh, at this moment in time. So you're still going to see uh, some measure of disruption. You've still got the ability for the government to act as a obstacle and an impediment to negotiations. And as you said, these, uh, you know, the dispute isn't going to go away. But I think RMT members uh, can and will take an awful lot of heart from the success that they've had with Network Rail. And public opinion isn't moving in the government's favour when you look at that big picture. While they've successfully in some ways managed to monster Mick Lynch as an individual, uh, the RMT members themselves, public sector workers as a whole, they enjoy quite a bit of public support. So if the government want to, uh, you know, destroy uh, the reputation of striking workers, they've got an awful lot of a way to go. And that's even with the entirety of the press on their side. Correct. But as Mick Lynch pointed out, the rail strikes are not over yet. RMT members are still in dispute with 14 other train operators with walkouts due on the 30th of March and the 1st of April. But even if those companies close pay deals with their workers tomorrow, that still wouldn't mean an end to the disruption of British train travel. And that's because the government has given one of the most notorious rail operators in the country another six-month extension on their contract. 
Avanti West Coast runs key services between London, Birmingham, Manchester and Glasgow, or at least claims to. They have earned the moniker of, quote, the worst performing rail operator in Britain. Avanti services over the past six months have been hugely scaled back to the point passengers can only buy tickets for journeys just in advance. Even if you're the bearer of a lucky golden Avanti ticket, delays, double bookings and cancellations are likely. Meanwhile, rail fares have risen by another 5.9%. Avanti handed shareholders a cool £13.5 million at the end of last financial year. This was up from £11.5 million in 2021, an increase. At the same time, you know what else was on the increase? Complaints to the rail service, which were 10 times higher to Avanti than the national average. Avanti's service is so bad that Labour have labelled it as, quote, literally record-breaking. And now, the Tories are rewarding Avanti, which is a joint venture between First Group and Trent Italia, Italy's biggest train operator, with millions more in taxpayer cash to keep their shoddy service going. Can you tell that I'm an Avanti rail passenger? I hope you can. This is despite Avanti being placed on a previous six-month probation in October 2022. The company was set to lose their contract if they failed to, quote, drastically improve services. Now, I don't know about you guys, but to most of us, those drastic improvements are nowhere to be seen. However, Transport Secretary Mark Harper must have different metrics because he said that Avanti's recovery plan is, quote, working. And a joint statement from Harper and the Department for Transport justified the decision. Since the introduction of this timetable on the 11th of December, Avanti West Coast has seen very significant improvements across services, including weekday services have risen to the highest level in over two years, reducing cancellations from nearly 25% of the service in August 2022 to 4.2% in early March 2023, the lowest in over 12 months, 90% of trains now arriving within 15 minutes of the booked time. Over 100 additional drivers have been recruited, reducing reliance on union-controlled overtime working. Wow, 90% of services arriving within 15 minutes of the book time. Wonderful. Now, did you notice the very subtle union bashing in that statement? The government is joining Avanti in trying to blame the unions, particularly ASLEF, who represent train drivers, for the operator's problems. And this isn't the first time they've relied on this blame shifting. When Avanti slashed intercity timetables in August 2022, the operator said the move was the result of, quote, unofficial strike action. In return, Aslef called Avanti, quite restrainedly, lying cheapskates and said that the problems actually stemmed from Avanti's reluctance to hire more drivers. Unsurprisingly, Aslef has condemned Avanti's latest contract renewal. Aslef Secretary-General Mick Whelan had this to say. It is frankly extraordinary, as well as very disappointing and discouraging for everyone working on Britain's railway network, that the government is yet again rewarding failure. The abject failure of Avanti to deliver the services it has promised passengers, businesses and taxpayers it will run. The company has been trying to run its service on the West Coast mainline on the cheap, cheating staff, passengers and taxpayers to line the pockets of its shareholders. And that is a disgrace. If Avanti had done the right thing and employed, as we've consistently asked it to do, enough drivers, it would not have had the problems that have persisted all through this year. 
Now the company is trying to cover its own inadequacies and is convening with the government to try and impose changes. Ash, why do the Tories keep letting companies like Avanti run our already struggling railways? I don't think I'm going to be telling you anything new here, but it is just worth reiterating that people talk about capitalism and privatization and free markets as though these things are rational. So it's a rational system. The company has an incentive to run the service as best as they can, because if not, they'll lose the contract to a competitor. And the government, being democratically accountable to the people, has an incentive to try and make sure that that service is as well run as possible. That's how it's meant to go. Now, a brief or passing glance at the realities of privatization would show you that that is not the case. One is that people don't have the choice to go to a different competitor, right? So if I want a different way of getting to London to Manchester in a timely fashion, my choices are get the train uh, and private operators have a monopoly on that. I can fly, which is you know, not a particularly attractive choice. It is a faff going through airports and that's before you even get to the whole, oh, we're living in a climate crisis thing. Or you can get a coach or drive, which again is really time consuming. And you add to that the impact of uh, carbon emissions through road travel. So ultimately, we, the people, don't have much of a choice. We have to rely on the infrastructure that's there no matter how bad it is. And the government, with an ideological commitment to privatization, have no incentive to threaten struggling lines with nationalization, saying, look, run this better, or ultimately you'll lose the contract, because they are ideologically wedded to keeping as much of public service out of public hands so that profits, which are paid for out of our pockets, can go to lining the offshore bank accounts of shareholders or indeed funding the nationally owned infrastructure of other countries, like the case of Trenitalia. So it is an ideological position. And that's because the Conservative Party don't exist for good governance of public services. They never have and they never will. What they exist to do is to try and create a political case, along with all the help from the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph and the Times, to transfer as much public wealth into private hands as possible. And when you haven't had people making the case for the nationalization of the railways, apart from that brief window of time, 2015 to 2019, when the opposition refuses to make the case for a better run and more financially efficient rail service, which happens to be in public hands, well, then the Conservatives can go, there's no political consequence for this. We can continue presiding over the decline of our rail infrastructure, again, at a time of climate crisis when it's precisely when we need to be investing in really good rail infrastructure, because what are you going to do? Nothing. Vote for Keir Starmer. I mean, he's, you know, rowing back on every pledge he's ever offered, uh, making very ominous noises about the commitment to nationalize rail. So that's why the government can get away with such terrible 
you know, I was going to call it mismanagement. Mismanagement makes it sound like an accident. I would call it vandalism in the interest of profiteering. Uh, That's what's happening to our public services. That's what's happened to uh, the railways. It's what's happened to water. It's what's happening to energy. And it's what's happening to the NHS. Um, Depressing, I know. um, But that's what's behind the failure to do the most efficient and financially viable thing which is take this back into public ownership so that profits get reinvested into infrastructure and staff and making sure we've got a really good railway rather than you know making sure that Italy has a really nice train system. Speaking of outsourcing our problems to external operators, Home Secretary Suella Braverman has been visiting Rwanda and she has been having the time of her life. This is her here, pictured outside the wiser Riverside estate, which she claims will provide accommodation to asylum seekers deported from the UK. Live, laugh, love, Suella. Photoshoots aside, Braverman also invited her favourite members of the press to go to Rwanda with her. Journalists on The Telegraph, The Daily Mail and GB News were there to give softball interviews and gush over the facilities apparently on offer. On the other hand, The Guardian, The BBC, The Mirror, The Independent and The I newspaper were all banned. Reporting on Braverman's visit to the Riverside Estate, The Telegraph's reporter gushed this. The houses provide families with off-street car parking, fibre-optic broadband, front and back gardens, an eco-design that also combats humidity and gases rising from the ground, and decor that would not look out of place in a British townhouse. Viewing the wooden panelled interior of one of the two-bedroomed homes with its beige velvet sofa and floral pink scatter cushions, Mrs Braverman said, These houses are really beautiful, high quality, welcoming, and I quite like your interior designer. I need some advice myself. She added, I'm really impressed by the quality of the housing you are creating. What is impressive is the pace of your rollout. It takes two weeks to construct a house with a team of ten people. Yes, that truly does suggest high quality, doesn't it? Two weeks to put up a house with beige sofas. Later, GB News asked the Home Secretary what she would say to critics of this highly designed scheme. The policy still, of course, has its critics. Gary Lineker, for one, opposition politicians. Would you encourage them, actually, to come here and see for themselves what Rwanda has to offer those who would come here and settle? Absolutely. I think there has been far too much prejudice, frankly, snobbery uh, amongst the critics, who most of, uh, most of whom haven't even visited uh, Rwanda. This is my third visit to Rwanda. Uh, this is a welcoming country. It's a dynamic economy. There are, uh, they have a proud track record in supporting and resettling refugees in the region. I've just met several refugees from Eritrea, from Burundi, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, who found sanctuary here in Rwanda. uh, And they have nothing but gratitude for Rwanda. So to all of those critics uh, who display uh, a gross prejudice against Rwanda, uh, I tell them to visit first uh, and then judge. Someone who has visited Rwanda many more times than Suella Braverman is British journalist Michaela Rong. She's recently authored a book on Rwandan President Paul Kagame's 23-year regime. And speaking to The Guardian, she said this. 
Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo are on the brink of all-out war. The M23 guerrilla group, a Rwandan proxy, has sent 600,000 to 800,000 Congolese villagers fleeing their homes, and Bravem is happily validating the African leader widely recognised to be responsible for the destabilisation of the African Great Lakes. Britain should be discussing slapping sanctions on Rwanda. It is the only message Kagame responds to, rather than planning to send migrants there. Maybe Rwanda should also slap sanctions on us for telling them that their interior design with beige sofas and pink cushions is worthy of copying. GB News also asked Braverman whether she thought the Rwanda deal meant the UK was giving up on its international responsibilities to refugees. Surprise, surprise, here's what she said. Coming to Rwanda or being resettled to Rwanda via the UK, if you've come to the UK illegally, will be a blessing. Uh, you will be provided with humanitarian support. It will be a humane uh, uh, provision for you. Uh, but I also say that ultimately we need to stop uh, the people smuggling gangs. And that's why uh, Rwanda is important. The people smuggling gangs are exploiting uh, thousands of people. They are uh, uh, receiving, uh, people are paying thousands of pounds to take an illegal journey, to take sometimes a tragically fatal journey, to break our laws and to undermine our rules in the vain hope that they might have a life in the United Kingdom. By working with our friends here in Rwanda, we, uh, uh, we break the business model upon which these gangs are operating. Let's just get into the logic of that. First of all, it's a blessing to be deported from Britain to Rwanda. You receive loads of support and a new life, plus homes that have protection from gases from the ground. Who could not want that? But the scheme is also somehow supposed to be a deterrent. Those two things can't both be true. And let's talk about costs as well. The Rwanda scheme has so far cost the UK government £140 million. Yet not a single asylum seeker has found themselves in Rwanda yet. And that is because the first flight last year was blocked by the European Court of Human Rights using what's called a Rule 39 injunction. Braveman has also revealed she's been in talks with Strasbourg about making it harder for the court to block future flights. Sky News reports this. As part of talks with the Strasbourg court, the government has requested a higher legal threshold for any Rule 39 injunction that may be imposed on future deportation flights. It also wants the ECHR to take into account that the UK High Court ruled the Rwanda scheme was lawful. The government also wants to make legal representations if the court seeks another injunction in the future. It's also been revealed that private companies in the UK are making bumper profits from the misery of asylum seekers who spend months detained in hotels. BBC News reports this. BBC News has been told 395 hotels are being used to house asylum seekers as arrivals to the UK rose last year. Documents show one booking agency used by the Home Office trebled its pre-tax profits from 2.1 million to 6.3 million in the 12 months up to February 2022. The government has never publicly confirmed the number of hotels used, but a government source told BBC News it is now using 395 to accommodate more than 51,000 asylum seekers at a cost of more than £6 million a day. Now just imagine, instead of the government using an inefficient system in housing people in often inhabitable conditions and hotels that are poor safeguarding, if any, they actually allowed asylum seekers to come here via safe and legal routes and to work when they got here and build lives of their own. But no, no, this system makes much more sense. 
Now, other private companies making big bucks include Serco and the Mears Group. Ash, we've got private companies making millions from a broken asylum system while the Home Secretary surrounds herself with client journalists on a jolly in Rwanda. It makes me, it makes me actively furious to see Suella Braveman do this. Where, if anywhere, do actual asylum seekers fit into this pantomime? I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Moya. This isn't about actual asylum seekers at all. It's the government trying to deal with the very fact that they've been whipping up a moral panic about asylum seekers for so many years, as have governments before them. And now they need to be seen to be doing something about a problem that they themselves have created. The problem that they've created is that they've closed down safe and legal routes for most of the world's asylum seekers, only allowing for a very small number of individuals from Hong Kong, Afghanistan, and Ukraine to be able to come here. And the rest, who are still people to whom we owe a duty of care, who we must legally assess the asylum applications for, have been left with no real way to get here. Unless by some miracle they've managed to get their hands on a tourist visa, which is very, very, very difficult to come by. There aren't ways for them to apply for their asylum status from abroad. And so when you close down all those routes and you make crossing a sea dangerous and busy shipping lane, in small boats which are unseaworthy, having often paid thousands of pounds to smugglers to be able to do so, the only option, and then you go, oh, that's the problem. We've got to stop that. You're kind of boxing yourself in as a government to then having to do something which is expensive, inhumane, almost grotesquely cruel. There's almost this pantomime element of the cruelty. And also, it's not going to work. It is not going to work because, as you said, the logic is deeply flawed. If what you're trying to do is say, oh, this is the better way to process asylum applications, but people can't make asylum applications because they can't come here. And that's how we're going to you know, break the hold of the smuggling gangs. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're spending £140 million to do some really expensive showboating, doing some soft serve interviews with right-wing outlets, where basically you're playing to your base and going, look how nasty we're getting. Well, the whole time, your intention is to leave asylum seekers trapped in a state of limbo, either in countries that are unsafe for them or in countries which neighbor the country that they fled or indeed in France. Now, already countries which neighbor the country that they fled take the bulk of asylum applications and the bulk of successfully granted asylum applications, refugee status. And when it comes to other European countries, Germany, Italy, France, they all take far more asylum seekers than we do. They process more asylum applications than we do. The people who want to come here, by and large, have some kind of connection to the UK, whether that's speaking the language or having family who are here or having a community that they feel will be able to support them as they integrate in society and participate in society, or they believe the UK's reputation as being less racist and more welcoming than many of our neighbouring European countries. So by and large, asylum seekers are people who have a claim to being here, who, who want to be here. There's a specific reason why they don't want to stay 
in France or Germany. That was the reason why they want to be part of that very small number of people who want to come here. And this entire Rwanda scheme is basically a very expensive way of keeping them in limbo. And what that means, if you're an asylum seeker and you're stuck in Calais, is that you're really at the mercy of the French police because, of course, you've got Emmanuel Macron trying to play to his right-wing audience at home. And that means empowering the police to often violently move on asylum seekers to confiscate or destroy their belongings. And that's the life that we're condemning these people to. The, The right like to say, oh, France is a safe country. You know, why don't they just stay there? Well, lots of asylum seekers have been victims of really brutal violence, often at the hands of the state. That's why they don't want to stay there. So you're right to be furious at this. You're right to be furious at this whole shabby pantomime. You're right to be furious about what this means for asylum seekers. And you're right to be furious about the waste of public money that this represents when you could spend a far smaller fraction of that sum in providing safe and legal routes, supporting people while they're waiting for their asylum status to be granted and supporting them to enter the workforce, which is what most asylum seekers want to do. It's worth remembering, in addition to those comments, that just last week Rishi Sunak signed a £500 million deal with France in order to supposedly tackle the small boats problem from the French side, which led to an agreement with Macron that there'll be new detention centres opened. We've also paid about £63 million last year to France for them to increase beach patrols and allow English border control to work in French offices. We are paying a lot of money to do something about a very, very, very minute problem that could be solved easily by other means, i.e. safe, legal routes and access to work. Next. It does indeed seem like the SNP are in a crisis. In the wake of the resignation of leader Nicola Sturgeon, the party has kick-started a leadership contest, but no one, no one expected it to get so brutal so fast. And in a major new interview with Sky News today, Sturgeon has warned her wannabe successors against the public infighting that has exposed deep divisions within the party. Now, those divisions have seen the three candidates running to be SNP leader attack each other's political records and integrity. Humza Yousaf, Kate Forbes and Ash Regan have traded damaging blows to both themselves and the SNP's reputation for unity in a series of leadership debates. Here's a sample of the sniping. Humza, you've had a number of jobs in government. When you were transport minister, the trains were never on time. When you were justice minister, the police were strained to breaking point. And now as health minister, we've got record high waiting times. What makes you think you can do a better job as first minister? On at least two occasions during the hustings, and then you repeated it again this evening, you said that you're not as smart as Nicola Sturgeon, and if there was a way to be found, she would have found it. So why do you think that you can succeed where she's failed? The question for me is, who do our opponents fear? I believe I'm the candidate that our opponents fear with the plan that our opponents most fear. I think the person that their opponents would fear is the person that has a plan to get independence. You say you're the only candidate that can persuade people who voted no. In the first week of your campaign, you had people who voted leave Uh, voted yes, leave your campaign, MSP after MSP. You've had many people, particularly from our LGBTQ community, say they won't vote for independence if you're the leader. Forget persuading no voters. You can't even keep yes voters on site. 
So after you've wrapped up the deal with the Greens, I haven't said that I would wrap uh, up the yes, deal. Yes, you with said Greens. you've no, made it pretty clear that you wouldn't work with the Greens. They've so said once, that they wouldn't work with me. If you let me finish me. your question, if you let me finish my question, so you've said that you would reject uh, the Greens. Uh, when you do that, and it comes to passing your first budget, who will you cut a deal with first, Douglas Ross or Anna Sauer? One in four children are in poverty, as I've already said. What's your plan to reduce that? And do you not think it's an outrage? It absolutely is an outrage, and that's why I cannot stand here and tell the people in the SNP to keep voting for us and voting for us and voting for us with no plan for independence in sight. Now, wasn't that the cat amongst the pigeons? It's got so bad that Nicholas Sturgeon apparently feels the need to call for order. Speaking to Sky's Beth Rigby, Sturgeon warned the trio not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're going through what I would describe as necessary growing pains, it is difficult, but I think we'll come out of it stronger. And perhaps the tricky thing, given we are undefeated electorally, still by some distance, Scotland's biggest political party, it's to get the balance right between the renewal, change, refresh that is necessary. I wouldn't be standing mm. down if I didn't think that was necessary after 16 years in government, but also protecting the ingredients of our phenomenal electoral success, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not suggesting that this is not a difficult process and at times it has been a, a less than edifying process. Sturgeon might just be regretting standing down at this particular point when she sees those leadership debates and the trust that the SNP commands in Scotland is under threat as a series of separate allegations of misconduct are dominating headlines. The most bombastic of these resulted in the resignation of SNP Chief Executive Peter Murrell this weekend. Murrell has served in the role for 20 years and he also happens to be Nicola Sturgeon's husband. He resigned for the job after a row over party membership numbers. Last month, the SNP flatly denied reports membership had fallen by about 30,000 people. And communications chief Murray Foote described the reporting of the drop as, quote, inaccurate and drivel. But Ash Regan and Kate Forbes demanded to know how many members were eligible to vote in the leadership elections in a linked row about the integrity of the process. And the party had to admit that membership had indeed decreased over the last two years from 104,000 people to 72,186 people. This admission led to two big resignations. Murray Foote was the first to go on the 17th of March, but when the story didn't disappear, Peter Murrell followed the next day. In a statement, Murrell said... Responsibility for the SNP's responses to media queries about our membership number lies with me as chief executive. While there was no intent to mislead, I accept this has been the outcome. I have therefore decided to confirm my intention to step down as chief executive with immediate effect. I had not planned to confirm this decision until after the leadership election. However, as my future has become a distraction from the campaign, I've concluded that I should stand down now so the party can focus fully on issues about Scotland's future. The election contest is being run by the National Secretary and I had no role in it at any point. That last line is important because this latest incident is part of wider rumblings about, quote, transparency within the internal workings of the SNP. Questions have also been raised primarily by leadership candidate Ash Regan about the secrecy surrounding the ballot process, which could, in part, be a manufactured crisis. This detail was included in an opinion piece written by The Guardian's Scotland editor Severin Carroll and published today.
To add to the intrigue, there are also suggestions that the transparency crisis was engineered, in part at least, by Alex Salmond, Sturgeon's former mentor and now her bitter enemy. Ash Regan is seen as Salmond's ally, or at worst, his proxy candidate. Regan's campaign manager is Kirk Torrance, one of Salmond's closest former associates. Then there's also the current Police Scotland probe into whether £600,000 raised by the SNP for an independence campaign was used by the party for other things, which could amount to fraud. In Nicola Sturgeon's interview with Sky, she said neither she nor her husband had been contacted by the police regarding the investigation. Just before I move on, there's also an ongoing police investigation sure. to use of funds. We wouldn't expect you to comment on that. But there's a suggestion you and your husband will be interviewed. Have you heard anything on that? No, but I am not going to comment on... I wouldn't comment on any ongoing police investigation and I'm not going to comment on this one. So you haven't heard, but it must have been put pressure on you and your husband. Hand on heart, did this play any no. part in your departure, in your hasn't. decision? No. Now, is the SNP descending into sleaze? Or is something else going on? Earlier today, I spoke to Nick McCarroll, senior lecturer in law at Glasgow Caledonian University. And I began by asking him why the SNP's misleading media briefings have claimed so many powerful scalps. At the very basic level, they were caught out. They tried to, to cover up a story which the Sunday Mail, a newspaper up here, ran on 30,000 members falling away from membership of the SNP. They denied it. Their, their press officer uh, fed the story, denying it to one of the papers that's more sympathetic to the SNP, the National. And when they actually did reveal the figures, it was found to be completely untrue. Now, in normal circumstances, they may have survived that. But in the middle of a, a quite a highly contested and contentious leadership campaign, that, that sort of blatant spin just uh, fell apart and the press officer resigned. Uh, which exposed the chief executive of the SNP, who then resigned the next day over it. So I think it's to do partly with the the sort of uh, the blatant nature of the misleading information, but also the context in which it happened as well. And it's significant that the chief executive was Nicola Sturgeon's husband. What impact has ha that had on the current crisis engulfing the SNP? That's central to the whole thing, because the argument now uh, going on within the SNP is that for many years it was too centralised, uh, not just in terms of personnel, but in terms of all decisions being made um, without any input of, of members, even though, as the figures show, even with a 30,000 uh, fall, it's quite a big membership for the Scottish population. However, the idea and the allegations are that because um, the leader of the SNP and the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, was married to the chief executive, that was unhealthy and centralised these decision-making. And now you can see with Nicola Sturgeon's resignation a few weeks ago that this has become more exposed. And in particular, elements of the leadership campaign have, have focused in on that issue as a problem for the, for the party. Why are there being questions raised about the transparency involved in the ballot process of the leadership contest? And do they hold any weight? To some extent, you can take them with a pinch of salt because they were raised by one candidate who is, is the sort of outsider in the leadership uh, race, Ash Reagan, who resigned from the SNP, or resigned from the SNP government rather, over the gender recognition reform law. And she highlighted Peter Murrell's relationship to Nicola Sturgeon for that purpose. I think she drew a parallel with Boris Johnson and Carrie Johnson, for example, early on. Now, I think that is overstated to an extent because the leadership campaign is being run by a third party organisation. And now all the party candidates, including I noted today, Ash Regan, have admitted that the contest is 
uh, is um, transparent and has integrity. Uh, but I think it was initially raised partly to get at this centralised uh, centralised critique of the way in which the SNP is being run. And But that stemmed from um, the uh, leadership outsider um, who has been advised by by people that, w- that were very close to Alex Salmon, the ex-leader of the SNP, for example. So we've got this misleading media briefing. We have these sort of questions raised about the transparency of the ballot process, even though those have now been disregarded. But it's adding up to a bit of a miasma of sleaze around the SNP. How does this ongoing investigation into SNP finances also factor in? This is an interesting element of it because the police are actually involved in an investigation for the SNP. Uh, and in Scotland, we also have the prosecution service, the Crown Office. So they are um, being informed by the police as they go along in their investigation for this. What the root of it is, is it's not um, it's not as clear uh, as some of the headlines suggest. What uh, It's a basic fraud allegation that's being investigated. The SNP raised an amount of money uh, for their independence campaign. The allegations are that that money, which amounts, I think, to around 600,000, was not properly used for that purpose. Rather, it's been used for other factors within the SNP. So the argument there is that there is a, a degree of... Uh, oversight over that money because it was it was gained under false pretenses. People gave money on the basis that it was going to be a campaign. There wasn't a significant campaign and rather it's been used for other purposes. Why, following Nicola Sturgeon's uh, resignation, has the SNP collapsed into such crisis, which is sort of illustrated by these spiralling allegations, which, as we've talked about, don't tend to hold much weight, but when taken as a sum, create this overall question around the SNP and the integrity of the SNP. What's going on there? What does this say about the political framework of the SNP and Sturgeon's role in it? At one level, it's pretty remarkable because for, for, for years, decades really, the SNP has had solid discipline and has been successful electorally in Scotland on the basis of uh, its pro-independence position, uh, which uh, following the, the defeat in the independence referendum, it's maintained an incredible electoral hegemony in Scotland. So the contrast with that is absolutely incredible, what's going on. But I think we've got to understand the context of what's happened in the SNP over the last decade. We have had a mass party alongside the, the, the mass membership that Corbyn managed to attract to, to Labour in uh, the last few years. The SNP's growth to a mass party was was phenomenal and really predated it by a year in Scotland. Um, that mass membership were not really integrated into a, a, a structure of a party. We also had uh, the criminal trial of the ex-leader of the SNP, Alex Salmond, on a number of allegations of sexual offences of which he was cleared. Uh, but he was very bitter about the way that was done. In particular, he felt that Nicola Sturgeon uh, played a role in uh, not defending him properly uh, initially in investigations. Um, Nicola Sturgeon was was adamant that what she was doing was uh, was standing up to bullying, and she thought that was the right thing to do. She, she's been on the record for that. But that dispute between two significant figures in the SNP, whilst it's been sort of kept a lid on, uh, for the last few years, that's all exploded out with this leadership campaign and Nicola Sturgeon's resignation. So I think this, these, battle, these battles that are going on stem from the leadership. Um, the exposing of all these different measures within the SNP stem from um, a dispute over the nature of the leadership within the SNP. 
Thank you so much, Ash, for joining me tonight. Um, it's been a pleasure. I think we've had a bonanza show. Ash, have you had a good time? I've had more fun tonight than I have ever had in all my years of watching Supermarket Sweep, which is for some reason what the word bonanza always reminds me of. Thank you so much, everyone, for watching this evening and for all your contributions in the chat. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm. It may feature Michael, it may not. You'll have to tune in to find out. But for now, you have been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.